Hey everybody, a content warning. This episode includes a description of a sexual assault. Celeste, from our first conversations about collaborating on this project, I asked you if you would be willing to go there uh, to talk about your own Me Too story. And I said I would. I just didn't want to make it the real reason that I'm here. It's not. I mean, I'm a journalist and a radio host, an author and speaker. That's who I am professionally. John Hockenberry and WNYC are just something that happened to me. And among other abuses men have committed against me as a woman in my professional life. But the story matters, of course, and it's certainly relevant to what we're doing here. You're Celeste Headley. And you're John Bewin. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX, this is Seen on Radio, part five of our series, Men. Exploring patriarchy, sexism, misogyny, male dominance, what it is, how it works in the real world, and what to do about it. So let's set this up. In December 2017, the writer Suki Kim wrote an article in New York Magazine about John Hockenberry. He was a respected public radio host who had recently retired at age 61 from his job at WNYC, New York Public Radio, where he hosted the news and talk show The Takeaway. That's right. Suki Kim was a guest on the show in 2014. She was there to talk about her book on North Korea, and she reported that after that appearance, Hockenberry pursued her with sexually suggestive emails for about a year and a half. And because of that experience, Kim decided to interview a number of women who'd worked on The Takeaway over the past decade, including me, to find out if her experience was unique or if other women had gone through something similar with John. And it turned out some women staffers had been sexually harassed by Hockenberry. And for a few of us, it was a really a different kind of abuse. When Suki called me and asked if I'd experienced abuse, I said yes, but I was talking about bullying, constant abuse and harassment that was demeaning and undermining, but not sexual. I complained many times and worked my way through the chain of command at WNYC, but nothing changed except that I was sent to get training on how to work with a difficult person and still sound good on the air. And you were not the only uh, co-host of John Hockenberry's who who went through something like this. No, Suki kept digging into the story and she found that all three African-American co-hosts on that show had the same problems with John. Abuse, harassment, constant bullying. John's first partner, journalist Adora Udoji, said he would constantly yell and scream at her in the studio even when senior staff was present. And then John told Farai Chidea she shouldn't stay there as a, quote, diversity hire and then advised her to lose some weight. I lasted the longest, that was three years, and John constantly cut me off, talked over me, took stories from me from himself. Every day was exhausting. Mm. Just sitting a few feet away from someone who screamed and ranted and insulted and demeaned me on a pretty regular basis. Those are three of the hardest years of my life particularly because the institution that was supposed to protect me was actually protecting my abuser and paying him almost double what I was making for the exact same job. And remember, you know, The Takeaway was a show that was created in order to reach more diverse audiences who tended not to listen to public radio. It was intended to include more people of color. And in the end, three women of color were bullied out of their jobs, and the person who ended up hosting the show alone was an older white male. WNYC hired an outside legal firm to investigate claims of misconduct on the part of not just John Hockenberry, but also two other men on staff. The investigation found a pattern of abuse going back years, but also found management was not to blame. John Hockenberry's response uh, was this. This is, this is a statement he put out, quote, It horrifies me that I made the talented and driven people I worked with feel uncomfortable and that the stress around putting together a great show was made worse by my behavior. Having to deal with my own physical limitations, on the side, uh, John uses a wheelchair. He's paralyzed from the chest, the chest down. down. Having to deal with my own physical limitations has given me an understanding of powerlessness 
and I should have been more aware of how the power I wielded over others, coupled with inappropriate comments and communications, could be construed. I have no excuses. Uh, WNYC issued a statement that included this, quote, We have committed to providing more training for employees, including managers, hosts, and other persons in authority, and more support for those who come forward. This may also mean more severe and immediate consequences for misconduct than was the norm in American workplaces a year ago. That's a pretty telling statement, right? Yeah. Yeah. How much changed in one year's time. And I understand this was not the first or only time that you, Celeste, uh, faced abuse from a powerful man in a professional situation. No. I mean, I'm a female journalist. I've been assigned arts and cultural stories while all the stories on the military went to men. I've interviewed men who made very overt passes at me, sometimes using explicit language. I had a boss who used to make jokes about the size of my chest. I mean, the list, we could spend the rest of the time just talking about that. Mm. Well, and judging from what I see, too, on social media from uh, women journalists in general, even including what happens on social media, wow, it's it's rough. It's rough out there. Yeah, sadly, it, it just becomes part of your job. And among your many talents and livelihoods, you're an opera singer. That's true. And and one of the directors I worked with in the opera world just retired after allegations of sexual misconduct. He would sexually harass me very blatantly during rehearsal in a room filled with people. And it was humiliating. Uh, he invited me back to his hotel room. He told me he'd brought a selection of sex toys with him overseas. Uh, when I told him I had a boyfriend, he said, bring him along. But, you know, there is a reason that the hashtag is Me Too. That's because most women have a story like this in their history. Most women have felt diminished and humiliated by a manager at some point. It was horrifying when all these stories began to emerge. But it was also a little comforting to know that I was not alone. When the silence was broken, it was like the bursting open of a release valve and a flood of stories about abuse on the job. You know, if we think about the deeper roots of this problem, of men abusing women on the job, remember what we heard in the first episodes of this series from anthropologists right, about public and private spaces yeah. and the patriarchy's long history of excluding women from public spaces, including a lot of professional settings. Yeah, but to be precise about it, historically women were excluded from most jobs. Yeah. Not most workplaces. Right. Men have wanted and needed women to work alongside them, but they wanted them working in subordinate, supportive roles, helping and serving the men. So, secretary, clerk, assistant, this or that. With less power yeah. and sort of there at the man's disposal, right, to serve the man in some way. For centuries, the doctor was almost always a man, the nurse a woman, to this day... More than 90% of airline pilots are dudes. The majority of flight attendants are women, on and on. Right? You know, things have changed a lot in a fairly short time. In the 1960s, Congress passed laws banning discrimination in hiring or wages based on gender as, as well as race. And in the 1970s, it became illegal to discriminate against women because they were pregnant. The term sexual harassment was coined in the 1970s. And in 1986... The U.S. Supreme Court declared sexual harassment a form of workplace discrimination. Those legal changes didn't end the problems, obviously. But until a generation or two ago, it's, it's, it's almost hard to imagine this now, women didn't even have that leverage. There, were, there weren't even any laws that they could appeal to to seek relief if they were discriminated against or harassed. So there's progress. Today, women make up half of the college-educated workforce and earn the majority of four-year and advanced degrees. Women have become astronauts, Supreme Court justices, CEOs, and almost, almost president of the United States. But we still have a long way to go, not just in terms of sexual harassment and hiring and promotions, but also in terms of pay. Personally, it wasn't until 2012 that I was finally making the same pay as other men in my job description. In this episode, uh, reported for us by producer Ibi Caputo, a broad look, kind of status report, on the experience of women on the job. 
the Me Too movement is shining an urgent light on sexual harassment and abuse in certain kinds of professional settings, especially media, politics, and entertainment. Ibby spoke with women about sexual harassment, but also about more subtle kinds of discrimination and more violent abuses. And she goes beyond the sorts of workplaces we've been hearing about through the Me Too movement so far, to occupations where women are often black or brown and they're especially vulnerable. We'll have more to say on the other side. Here's Ibby Caputo. When I was a teenager, this was the theme song of one of my favorite movies. Working Girl. It's the 1988 Oscar-nominated story of a secretary from Staten Island whose bright idea is stolen by her boss, a privileged 29-year-old who lives in her parents' Manhattan brownstone. The secretary then steals the idea back and lands a deal by pretending to be her boss. I loved this chick flick because my mom loved it, because Harrison Ford was in it, and he was so cute. But I recently watched it again, and it made me cringe. The boss is played by Sigourney Weaver. Her character is the one-dimensional villain, heartless, ambitious, conniving. Here's where she gets her comeuppance. Orin, this is a simple misunderstanding, and I, you cannot. I can and I will. Now get your, what did you call it? Bony Bony ass. Right. Bony ass out of my sight. Ouch. She's definitely not the woman we're supposed to emulate. The heroine of the story is the underdog, the secretary Melanie Griffith. She's soft and sexy and childlike at times. Here, she's rewarded after her boss is given the boot. You've got a real fire in your belly. Or was this just a one-time stunt that you pulled? I'm not sure what you mean. I have something in my belly, but I think it's nervous knots. I mean, are you willing to go out on that limb every day, working for me, legitimately? Yes, sir. Have to be right at the entry level. Any problem with that? No, sir. Gumption, Miss McGill. Yes, sir. (laughs) See you tomorrow. Okay. Okay. So I wasn't hip to the message when I watched this blockbuster on VHS, but it's pretty clear to me now. Be soft, don't be assertive. And if you want to get ahead, you've got to pit yourself against other women and potentially sleep with your new business partner who used to be your boss's boyfriend. Resources are scarce, ladies, men and careers. Very zero sum, the way they set it up. There's only so many slots for women. And what kind of woman is it who's going to take that particular slot? That's Hannah Riley Bowles, co-director of the Women in Public Policy program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. I asked her to watch the movie, and she did so while working out on her treadmill. It was not easy to discipline myself to watch this, I'll be candid with you, because there's so much you don't want, I don't want to watch, like, and you're in this tension. Because of the charm, you feel like you're being cranky, really disliking it, but there was a lot of it that was, ugh. Bowles studies how gender influences pain negotiations. I mean, one thing that stuck out to me that made me particularly sad, candidly watching it, was the queen bee image, you know, the, the queen bee role that um, Sigourney Weaver plays. The queen bee is both an archetype and a phenomenon studied by sociologists, where a woman in power doesn't help other women rise in the ranks and sometimes works to hinder their success. We're all going to cheer when the queen bee gets toppled, but it's also suggesting that a woman who's really competent but not nice should deserve at some point to get pushed out. And what a lot of the research shows is we don't hold men to that same standard. Bowles points to certain behaviors women and men both engage in, like asking for higher pay. What we found in the studies is actually both men and women look less likable and more demanding when they do this, but it only affected the willingness to work with the women. It's as if there's this likability tax for women. You know, it's the old adage that um, with uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, she did everything Fred did, but uh, backwards in high heels. The problem for a lot of women who are trying to make their way in male-dominated environments is that it's hard to always be sugar and spice and everything nice 
because you need to be tough as well as competent at certain moments. And in those moments, you might be violating someone's subconscious idea of how a woman should and shouldn't act. Now, the ways women are supposed to act aren't universal. The stereotypes in Working Girl largely refer to the pigeonholes white heterosexual women fall into. The stereotypes can shift when you bring in race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, and gender presentation. Bull says there's not a lot of research on how these identities intersect with gender norms in the workplace. But one thing is clear. There's a narrow window of socially acceptable behavior for all women. And this puts many working women in a bind. I remember, like, really wanting to be successful. Kelly Lanspo works in tech in Silicon Valley. But I remember thinking and telling my ex-husband, I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like a square peg in a round hole. You know, I just feel like I don't belong here. I don't know, is it me? I don't understand. And I kept blaming myself for not fitting in, but I I don't think it was me. I don't think it was Kelly either. She laid out her nearly 30-year career for me, not by telling me about each rung on the ladder to success, but instead by describing all the times she experienced gender discrimination and sexual harassment. I think it was the definition of how a woman's supposed to be. And I think people being uncomfortable with the woman being direct, forceful, tenacious, but also, you know, I'm being pretty or attractive or bubbly and friendly. And, you know, it's like they can't put those, women can't be both. Kelly's in her early 50s. She says the sexist behavior started with her very first job in tech, where senior management referred to the women in the office as the stable. As in a stable of horses, uh, as in a stable of horses of mares. Not long after that, Kelly decided she wouldn't work in what she called the velvet ghetto. It's also been called the pink ghetto. It refers to departments filled mostly with women, like human resources and public relations. Kelly says she realized that in tech, the closer you are to engineering, the better off you are. I made a conscious decision to move towards uh, the more the more technical marketing because I didn't want to be in that velvet ghetto. There were mostly women there. Um, that's where women would, would move up in management. But the salaries weren't there, and they were laid off. They were seen as more, you know, less, less critical, more expendable. But Kelly's decision to pivot her career towards more stability and money meant she was often the only woman around. You'd stick out like a sore thumb, and it would be quite obvious that, you know, they just felt very uncomfortable with you. That discomfort would come out in all sorts of ways. There was a time when her supervisor would only talk to her with the door to his office open, even though he shut the door when he talked with her male colleagues. He would get up and open the door. And we would play this game of open the door, shut the door, open the door, shut the door. And then finally he said, you know, I can't, I can't have you saying something about me. I don't trust you, you know, insinuating that I would leap over the desk and make some sort of pass at him. So, you know, that impacted our discussions. That impacted the quality of feedback that I'd get, you know, the the candidness. And all of our conversations were public. Then there was a time a boss gave her some really good advice. He thought he was being really helpful, you know. He was trying to do it from a good place, but he told me, Kelly, I've worked with one other woman in management, and what made her really successful is she didn't really force her ideas. She just put the ideas out there and let, you know, everybody in the group, primarily men, just let everybody think it's their idea. And then they come around to it. Kelly remembers thinking to herself, what does that even mean? That part of your personality, the part that makes you successful, tenacious, um, you know, driving forward and, and creative, we want you to dial that back. So that there's no challenging of, of their egos or anything. You just suggest them gently. You don't own them. You don't, you, you don't get passionate about it or strident is a word they, you know, I would, I've often heard in my career. Don't be so strident. 
Strident, of course, is one of those negative words used to describe women who bend or break or somehow violate the deep-rooted stereotypes of how a woman should behave. Other popular choices include pushy, bossy, shrill, abrasive, emotional. Kelly says over the years, she's asked her male colleagues if they've ever been called strident. Like what? No. There was one company she worked at where the men would fly business class and take limos to the airport, while Kelly would scramble to get a ride because no one had told her about those perks. That was also the place where a male colleague just didn't want to work with her. And I remember asking him numerous times for some information about his product that I could put into my product data sheet. And he would just ignore me. I think just intentionally hoping I would fail. So I had gone over into his, stepped not quite into his cube, but right on the outside, the door of it, and politely asking him, can I get this information? And he, this one time he stood up and walked over to me and chest-butted me out of the way. Kelly withheld the names of the tech companies where she worked. She says Silicon Valley is a small valley, and she's concerned about retribution. She says part of her is so angry, she wants to call out the people who hurt her. She fantasizes about logging onto Facebook and outing them to their wives and daughters. But she doesn't, she says, because it would be ugly. Besides, she says, she was young back then, and she grew up Catholic and was taught to respect authority. And I thought, well, I need to toughen up. That's how, that's how the business world is done. And if I want to be accepted as an equal and I want to compete, you know, I picked a, a competitive industry. There were a lot of men in it, but I felt like I just need to, you know, put my big girl panties on and just deal with it. That idea that you need to toughen up because that's just how the business world is reflects an aspect of workplace culture that's been studied and has a name. It's called the masculinity contest. Peter Glick is a professor at Lawrence University, and here he is talking about it in an online video posted last year by Harvard Business School. In the context of organizations, the masculinity contest is viewing work as a dominance contest uh, and that you win through performing masculinity. And so it creates a set of norms and we've measured these norms uh, within organizations. So the norms have to do with uh, things like showing no weakness. So being the tough guy, not asking questions because that might make you seem like you don't know the answer. Also valuing strength and stamina and putting work first ahead of family responsibilities. Glick says this work as manly competition creates all sorts of negative consequences. There are a few winners, but a lot more losers, and it creates organizational dysfunction. For instance, people who said, in my work environment, it has these aspects of the things we call the masculinity contest, uh, they uh, were much more likely to report that their immediate supervisor was a toxic leader. They were much more likely to report that the environment includes bullying, gender harassment, sexual harassment, ethnic harassment. Um, And then at the personal level, personal outcomes, they were reporting higher job burnout, uh, less organizational dedication, um, more of an intention to leave in the next three years, um, and, and lower psychological health. It doesn't sound like a fun place to work, but that's what Kelly Lanspo was dealing with as a woman in tech. Plenty has been written about the tech industry's bro culture, but I talked with lots of women from a variety of industries, journalists and academics, women who worked in government and on farms, in restaurants and in retail. They had stories to tell, too. For two years, for two years, I worked at the same pay grade as the person that I supervised. But what ended up happening is two of the members of the city council um, said, oh, no, Kirsten can't can't have that job um, because she's a mom with kids. It's like, it's not like the groping that was so terrible. It was the years and years and years of like very insidious undermining and demoralizing that happened and all of that. I, I, that, was, that was when I realized like, they're not used to women who speak. <laughs> you know, they're not used to women who will speak and own the floor for more than a minute or women that don't just 
you know, smile and nod. And I'm like, really? Like, you literally didn't even hear me. And he basically just talked at me for the next half hour or so. Um, and he eventually said, um, you know, you're a woman and a lot of women have problems with men. Do you have a problem with men? And I said, no. Um, and, you know, I should mention that I'm gay and I look very, very visibly gay. Um, and that was clearly a homophobic comment. There's no true way, I don't think, to know if someone is racist or treating me differently because of my color or because of my gender. Unless, I suppose, they say something explicit. Why would my boss at the bike shop think, let's pay Shelly way less? The guys are worth more. I've never missed a day of work. I hold the keys to the shop. I do my work faster than anybody. Why on earth would they get paid more? There's just no answer except for a silent agreement that exists out there that we haven't yet touched. I can only suspect that it's because he's a man and I'm a woman. And he uh, slammed his fist down on the table and he said, fine. And he stormed out of the room. I, I believe talking to the, to the company lawyer <laughs> would help me somehow. I mean, I, I should have just gotten my own damn lawyer and had them give me advice. And so then we sat there for, I think, about an hour and a half where they bullied me into dropping the grievance. And so as a result, you know, I then left the organization like so many women had before me. And here's one of my stories. At one place I worked, a public radio station in a big city, the man who was hired as my editor and promoted to news director had been named in a sexual harassment and retaliation claim that resulted in a settlement at a previous job. When I first complained about being bullied by that editor, I was told that I read too much into things. Eventually, I was assigned a new editor, but the damage was already done. I was so demoralized I could hardly speak in meetings. I left that job soon after. But usually a woman in that situation just simply feels crazy. You really have to find some place where you um, can feel like you're, like I said, not crazy, and that you really understand and see clearly what's happening to you. And if it doesn't feel right, then it's probably something is amiss. Meg Bond is a professor of psychology and the director of the Center for Women and Work at UMass Lowell. She's been studying sexual harassment and gender discrimination since the 1980s. She tells me that was how she coped with seeing discrimination in her own industry. So one of the things I've been trying to encourage people to do is focus on what sometimes people refer to as microaggressions or subtle bias, because allowing those to happen, really that's, that's the environment within which the more blatant harassment grows. When Meg Bond says this, it feels like an epiphany. All of the small things, the paper cuts, the things we pretend to laugh off or bear because that's just how things are, those small things are intimately connected with the more egregious abuses by the Harvey Weinsteins, the Matt Lowers, the John Hockenberries. I wouldn't necessarily say that the, the big stuff comes from the little stuff, but, but rather that the, the, the little stuff really creates the, the kind of organizational culture where the big stuff is likely to happen. Um, it's not inevitable, but it's very common that, that where the, the major events happen is where there is, it's communicated that, the, that these teasing, quote-unquote teasing, is okay. Kelly Lanspa, the tech professional we heard from earlier, didn't only experience teasing. She dealt with more blatant forms of harassment, too a supervisor who announced in front of colleagues that he wanted to fuck her, another boss at a different company who not only removed her name from a set of slides and presented them as his own, but forced a kiss on her when they were alone in a car and groped her while she was sleeping on an airplane. I, I pushed his hand away and pulled the blanket up and just tried to imagine it going away. I don't know, you know, it was hard to... I'd never thought about moving. I just didn't think it was an option. I just wanted to will it to go away. I thought if I, you know, I thought if I just um, didn't think about it and just put myself in my own little bubble, it would just 
disappear, and I'd get through it. Kelly did report this boss to his supervisor, but they were drinking buddies. He told me, well, we really like Greg. He's such a nice guy. He's so much fun. (laughs) And then he told me, let me just handle it. So stupidly, I, I didn't report it to HR. Kelly says it didn't help that it was an international company with a weak human resources department. To deal with the more explicit forms of sexual harassment, Kelly says she would try to control her own behavior. She wore her hair short, dressed in professional suits, never wore anything revealing. She said the sexual harassment was tiresome and obnoxious, but it was the more subtle forms of discrimination, the belittling and the constant reminders that she didn't belong and couldn't measure up to the men that she says ate at her soul. You know, I look back now, I could see a pattern, put on weight. I was getting, I'd never been an anxious person, but I was getting more and more anxious. Uh, Sleep was getting, I was grinding my teeth, wearing them down so bad that my dentist to this day, every time I go into a checkup, he's like, your teeth are so worn down and you have so many nodules in your mouth. That's, you have a stressful job. And, you know, I I can look back now and see the pattern of it slowly building, building, building. But then I'd have little, um, like I'd get promoted and I, I feel like, okay, it's worth it. And I'm succeeding. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm making it in this world. And, and then, you know, so be an up and down thing. Kelly didn't sue the company or the supervisor who groped her, but she did eventually file and settle a claim against a different company for different abuses. In 2015, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission created a select task force on the study of harassment in the workplace. The resulting report states that people who are harassed at work generally respond by avoiding the harasser, denying or downplaying the gravity of the situation, or attempting to ignore, forget, or endure the behavior. The least common response is to take some formal action, either reporting it internally or filing a formal legal complaint. In fact, roughly three out of four individuals who experience harassment never even talk to a supervisor, manager, or union rep about it. Why? The EEOC report says it's because employees fear their claim won't be believed and nothing will be done, or worse, they'll be blamed or face social and professional retaliation. Meg Bond was one of the 16 members of the EEOC's task force. You, you certainly are going to lose friends within your own workplace, and you may, you know, you always worry you're going to hurt your reputation outside of your immediate workplace. So organizations where they say, well, nobody's reporting anything, it just means people are too uncomfortable or feel unsafe to report it. Because even in the best organizations, this happens. It happens, and yet in the not-so-distant past, it seemed like no one was talking about it. I remember feeling duped when I figured out what it's like in the workplace, that a woman can be just as smart and capable as a man, but often he gets ahead while she's busy jumping through all these extra hoops. Once you start to see it, you see it everywhere. And that is the magic of the Me Too movement, is that women are starting to realize, oh, we don't have to accept this. The Me Too movement didn't really unearth something that that many of us weren't aware is already there how rampant it is because it's so part of our culture that that women have been devalued for a long time and most of us have been socialized to say well that's the way the world is and we'll we figure out a way to navigate um but the me too movement has got it out there in the media that we don't really have to tolerate this we don't The Center for Women and Work at UMass Lowell, the school where Meg Bond teaches, recently received a $3.5 million five-year grant from the National Science Foundation to reduce biases against women in science, technology, engineering, and math. Bond is the lead on that grant, and she says the university is using that money to raise awareness about microaggressions through speakers and installations, and it's investigating how subtle biases seep into decisions about tenure and hiring. We don't really care what's going on in your head. We care about the impact of what you're doing and saying, and it can come from the best intentions ever, but if it's making people around you, whether it's women, people of color, 
uncomfortable or feeling marginalized, you have to look at it and you need to think about changing it. So you can actually, I believe, start from the assumption that people are well-intended. They don't get up in the morning and say, I want to treat women horribly today. But they haven't necessarily stopped and been held accountable for the impact of what they do, and that is often to marginalize. Bond says UMass Lowell is also implementing bystander training. Really, it's it's essentially moving the responsibility for addressing these issues to everybody, that it's a shared responsibility. It's not just HR. It's not just the manager. It is all of those. But also developing the skill set for colleagues um, up and down the organizational hierarchy to be able to see these kinds of subtle biases and to to understand how they can intervene to try to either lessen the impact or change the transgressor or change the, the work environment in a broader way to make it less likely. Those are the sorts of institutional changes that can be sought after with a $3.5 million grant. But what about all the other workplaces, especially the ones with little incentive to change? Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, only applies to workplaces with 15 or more employees. That means a lot of workers aren't even protected by the federal law. In that report on sexual harassment I mentioned before, the EEOC included a chart of risk factors for harassment. A lot of them are known, including a lack of diversity in the workplace, a reliance on customer service, think restaurant work and other work for tips, and when workers are isolated, like they often are in hotel and farm work. All along, we worked in, in, um, in areas where they're very far away. Millie Trevino Salceda is the co-founder and vice president of La Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, the National Farmworker Women's Alliance. When Millie was eight years old, she started working with her brothers and their mother in potato alfalfa in wheat fields in Blackfoot, Idaho. She did this before and after school. When she was a teenager in the 1970s, her family moved to California. That's when she started getting harassed by the tractor driver while picking oranges and grapefruits. To protect herself, she'd challenge her brother to a competition to see who could fill the citrus bags faster, just so he would stay near her. She never let on to her brother that he was actually protecting her. I was always afraid to be blamed. Um, hold up. Hold up for a second. Yeah, I'm afraid. Just remember it. I didn't, I didn't know it was going to happen to me. I didn't just... I didn't want to even go to the restroom. I didn't want to do anything or find water during the day. Doing those things would mean she'd be by herself, and that would be dangerous. A 2010 study by a researcher at the University of California, Santa Cruz, found that the majority of women farm workers surveyed had been sexually harassed on the job. Millie says a lot of women farm workers deal with sexual violence as well. And this is why every time a woman comes to us, um, or comes to me directly, I, I always, always believe, uh, you know, that all this is happening and, and it's worse for many of them because they have been raped. Millie says the person who often knows the most about a farm worker is the crew leader, who usually does the recruiting and sometimes has a working relationship with labor traffickers. That makes women, especially undocumented women, particularly vulnerable to abuse. Uh, the first thing they say, they know, they know they're undocumented, uh, they're going to be threatening them. They're going to be telling them, you know, I know where you live, I know, um, you know, I, I, I can call uh, immigration on you, or if you don't do what I say, then you're going to be fired. And many of the people that are undocumented the first thing that they have to do after they arrive in the United States is pay a large debt for, you know, paying people to cross them over the border. 
In November of 2017, a few weeks after the Harvey Weinstein revelations, La Alianza Nacional de Campesinas published an open letter in Time magazine. It was written on behalf of 700,000 women farm workers who say they stand in solidarity with their Hollywood sisters. The president of La Alianza, Monica Ramirez, penned the letter. Here she is reading a portion of it. We do not work under bright stage lights or on the big screen. We work in the shadows of society, in isolated fields and packing houses that are out of sight and out of mind for most people in this country. Your job feeds souls, fills hearts, and spreads joy. Our job nourishes the nation with the fruits, vegetables, and other crops that we plant, pick, and pack. The letter helped spark Hollywood's Time's Up movement and its legal defense fund to support lower-income women in their fight against sexual harassment. Ramirez was even invited to the Golden Globes as actress Laura Dern's date. This is an important time. Women are telling their stories, not just to each other in so-called whisper networks, but out loud in the space created by social media. We are telling our stories and we are being heard and believed. No, está bien. Nunca he platicado esto ni a mi familia. No, it's okay. I've never told this story, not even to my family. Linda has harvested a lot of the foods we all buy in the produce section of the grocery store. Grapes, carrots, corn, lettuce, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, artichokes, asparagus, spices like cilantro, oregano, and parsley. In the off-season, she's cleaned houses in the Coachella Valley. Linda is not her real name. She says she can't remember if it was a supervisor or crew leader or the owner of a ranch who invited her and her sister-in-law to a restaurant to talk about a promotion. Y supuestamente nos estaban diciendo que, bueno, pues les vamos a aumentar el trabajo. They were telling us they were going to give us more work in a different position. They said, you're not going to work as packers anymore. Now you'll be the assistant to the supervisor or something like that. Linda and her sister-in-law had driven together in a car, but the men convinced them to split up. They asked Linda to drive one of the men home, and her sister-in-law would ride with the other man. And I thought, well, yes, I can give him a ride. Well, when we were on our way to his house, he started to try to abuse me, or rather, touch me and tell me things that I didn't like to hear. And I was telling him that I didn't come here for that kind of thing. The man wouldn't tell her where he lived. He kept directing her to deserted places. And I would tell him, if you don't tell me where you live, I'm going to drop you off right here. And you can figure out how to get to your house because I'm going to drop you off right here. Linda says the man could tell she was angry, and he said, I'm sorry, I won't mess with you anymore. But then he told her where he lived. Linda knows the Coachella Valley well. She knew that where he was telling her to drive was dark and isolated, far from the city, a place of ranches and fields. He asked her, why are you scared? And I said, you're not interested in whether I'm scared or if I'm not scared. That doesn't interest you. So get out of here or I'll ask someone nearby for help. Because I stopped in an area where there were houses and lights. It was late, already past 11, but there were a lot of people in cars moving around. I said, I'm going to stop any person here if you don't get out of the car. And he lunged himself on me. He wanted to take me by force and... Linda has kept this a secret for 20 years. She didn't even tell her sister-in-law when she found out a similar thing happened to her. 
Linda says she still feels guilty. I still do because I went with him. It was my decision to take him or not. She knows what happened is not actually her fault. Linda says she never told her story before because she was afraid she wouldn't be believed. But now she knows she's not alone. And she wants others to know that too. Ibby Caputo. This is John and Celeste. We're back. You know... It's really easy to hear stories about awful things that happen to other people and say we would have behaved differently in that situation. Um, So it's no surprise that Linda still feels what's basically an illogical sense of responsibility and guilt. Mm -hmm. But honestly, we're talking about women who are totally at the mercy of their supervisors. They work for very low wages. They're living paycheck to paycheck with no savings. So their willingness to tell their story, it just stuns me. I mean, that takes incredible courage. Yeah. A lot of women in those jobs are poor when they take the job, and they're still poor even though they're working. They're doing that work because they don't have better options to support their families. So you know, we need to state the obvious um, that abuse and harassment in the workplace is a man problem. Men do it to women by and large, and sometimes men harass men. It's not unheard of for women to be the harassers, but it's rare, very rare by comparison. So we need men to be better to just stop doing this crap. But we we can't wait for that, right? I mean, convincing all men to be better and rooting out all the abusers is a long-term project. It's one we'll talk about more later in the men series, but we need to find ways to protect women now, especially women in these low-wage industries. I looked up a few numbers. Um, One study found that about half of women who work in the restaurant business and 40% of those in fast food reported facing scary or unwanted sexual behavior on the job. A similar 42% said they didn't feel they could report these behaviors because they couldn't afford to lose their jobs. This is such a huge problem. We don't even know what to do about it, how to create conditions where women can speak up. Um, Me Too has created some momentum in that direction in a few industries, but it's still just a beginning. So all those laws that we listed at the top of the episode, laws against discrimination and sexual harassment passed a generation or two ago, they aren't much good when women don't feel they can report abuses and hold men accountable. I mean, some people might say these women just need to muster the courage to speak up when they're harassed or abused. But it's no mystery why so many don't do that. A large majority of women who report harassment are retaliated against. They're often just not believed. And unlike, say, a well-paid female host at Fox News being harassed by Bill O'Reilly, most women can't afford to hire a lawyer to advocate for them. I'm a textbook case of speaking up and seeing no action taken against the abuser and then even losing my own job later. So what to do? Experts who think about these things say there are changes in laws that would help give women more leverage. For example, changing that statute in the Civil Rights Act that Ibby talked about that excludes employees of small businesses from the law's protection. Just recently, a union in California negotiated an agreement for hotel workers ensuring that the hotels provide housekeepers with panic buttons to call for help if they're assaulted by a hotel guest. But some advocates say what it'll really take is something bigger and broader to make women in these lower-wage jobs less vulnerable financially raise the minimum wage, provide universal health coverage. Right, create conditions in which women and workers of every gender can afford to take on their employers or simply leave their jobs if they have to and not face complete destitution or homelessness. John, since Me Too blew up, quite a few men have engaged in hand-wringing, saying they don't know how to act anymore with the women they work with, given the heightened sensitivity to harassment and unwanted attention. Are you are you having this problem? I'm not, you know, and, and at the risk of sounding more feminist than the next guy, I, 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 I tend to kind of roll my eyes when I see that reaction, saying, like, come on, guys. 
but let's take a minute and not just dismiss uh, these concerns out of hand. To start with the more egregious abuses, it's, it's really not hard to not sexually assault or harass people you work with, I, I, would, I would submit that you could just not do those things. Right, so don't grope your coworkers, don't show them your junk either in person or via text message or Twitter. <laughs> don't ask them to sleep with you. Rules to live by. But to be fair, you're a happily married guy. You're not trying to find romance at work. This is true. And so for people who are, um, some guys are saying that feels trickier now. Right? If you if you're interested in someone at your job, how do you show how do you show that? without being that guy, the, the creepy dude making unwanted advances. Is it really that complicated? <laughs> I agree. I agree. But for those who aren't clear about it, I tell you what, how about I try to lay out some simple guidelines and you tell me how I'm doing? That's okay? a good idea. Okay. So let's say for the sake of argument that you're a, you're a guy and there's a woman you find attractive at your job. When it feels right, approach her in a respectful, appropriate way. Ask her if she'd like to have coffee sometime coffee is safe. Then, from the time of that invitation, through anything that may or may not happen from that moment on, cheerfully and gracefully take no for an answer. So if she's not interested in you, or if she ever stops being interested in you, or something you want to do with her or to her, <laughs> accept it, move on, and be nice and be a grown-up. Like, treat her the same way you would like to be treated if someone were making unwanted overtures to you. How's that? I, that's that's pretty good. I mean, most importantly, listen to her, right? Yes, and, and I would add, by the way, so this is like how to not be the guy, but I think we, we, we really, we also need to change the culture of enabling, the whole culture of the, the silent guys who are not doing this stuff, but stand by when we see it in our workplaces. We've got to start speaking up because that's really what it's going to take. It, the, the culture needs to change overall. Yeah, I mean, we have to get over this ridiculously outdated idea that the workplace is somehow yours and we women are intruding on it or that we're there to serve or please you sexually or otherwise. Wait, you're telling me women have jobs for the same reasons men do <laughs> to work to do your work and pay your bills yeah we gotta pay some bills you're not, you're not just the women aren't just not there looking for me yeah i would not be there did i not have bills to pay you know maybe someday we will all do that together on equal footing everyone will be treated with respect and for that matter minus the masculinity contest that just might be good for everybody Next time, in part six, one very particular professional setting, the military. What it means to be a warrior for men and women. Thanks to Ibi Caputo for reporting on this episode. Editorial help on the men's series from John Barth. Music by Alex Weston and by Evgeny and Sasha Galperine. Music and production help from Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. Voiceover this time by Roxandra Guidi. You can find transcripts and other info about the show at sceneonradio.org. Scene on Radio is a production of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX.